Well, good morning, Fellowship Greenville. My name is Jim, and I am one of the pastors here. Thank you so much for being here to worship Jesus with us today. Hello, Auditorium One across the way. Great to see you guys. You look beautiful per usual. If you are with us and you are new, we're especially glad to have you. If you have any questions about life here at Fellowship Greenville, we invite you to stop by guest services, which is over in the Commons near Auditorium One, and we have a team there they cannot wait to help you out in any way they could. We also have a space here in the back of Auditorium 2 that you can stop by. And members and regulars, you know the drill. Pretty please go bother the wonderful people out at Next Steps if you are looking to get further involved uh, with what God is doing here. Now, if you are new, one of the things that you will soon find out is that we want to be super, super committed to Holy Scripture. We want the Bible to inform everything we do all the way from next-gen ministry to community groups to mission, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the ways that we're trying to keep God's word central as his people is by slowly working through it every Sunday morning when we gather. So usually, you're gonna find us preaching and teaching straight through an entire book of the Bible or a long section of the Bible. And we do this because we don't wanna cherry pick the stuff we like and then ignore the, let's be honest, little weird stuff on the surface. We don't wanna do that. We don't wanna take it out of context and we don't wanna force our agenda onto the Bible like people often do. Rather, we want to slowly immerse immerse ourselves in scripture the way God gave it to us, book by book, section by section, so that slowly over time, our story gets lost in God's story. And many of you know that this approach to the Bible uh, has us today, this is our last week, don't cry, in the book of James, and we'll get to that in a a second. But I'm also excited uh, because I get to give you a preview of coming attractions, a little commercial for what's up next. So after James, we're gonna move into First and Second Samuel into a series called Royalty, and here's our approach to it. Um, Israel had three kings that each reigned for 40 years apiece, Saul, David, and Solomon. And so this spring, we're gonna take a look at the life and the reign of King Saul, and then we're gonna come back in spring 24, and we're gonna take a look at the life and reign of David. And then in 2025, we're gonna come back yet again and look at Solomon. So this is a marathon, not a sprint, buckle up. Um, So I'm excited about that. And all of this is gonna help us think about the royalty that God is and possesses and that we should reflect as his image bearers. And also this kind of royalty approach is gonna help us think about often us falling short and and our own neediness before him. So we're excited to start all that a couple weeks from today. But right now, before us is a final look at the book of James. And I hope that um, in your families and with your small groups, and with your friends, I hope that you guys have had rich discussion around the book of James because this series for so many people has been a game changer. It's been a call to action, like a call to have an energized faith. So James is writing to his friends 2,000 years ago to tell them that true faith in Jesus can't really sit still. It should be animated to persevere and to serve and to love and to be wise. And real faith, it takes words seriously, it takes money seriously, it takes people seriously, and it acts in ways that are consistent with Jesus and the good news about him, especially when the pressure is on and when suffering comes knocking at the door. So James is inviting both his friends and us, and he's nudging his friends and us to an energized trust in Jesus. And so I get the fun assignment today of trying to put a bow on all these things from James chapter 5 So if you wanna go ahead and get there in your Bibles 
and like keep your place. That would be good, great, wonderful, awesome. Thank you. James chapter five, we'll get there in a few minutes, I promise. Now, um, as a pastor, I have to think well about how the gospel of Jesus should shape my own life and should shape the lives of the people that I'm called to care for and shepherd and love. And I think, I think one of the biggest hurdles in all of this, in our modern context at least, is that American Christianity can tend to have an over-individualized faith. Here's what I mean. I think a lot of Christianity in America, I think we have let the cultural narrative of self so define faith that now most definitions are about faith in one's own faith, like faith in your ability to actually have faith, like Charlie hinted at this past couple weeks. So regularly, regularly neglected in all of this is the context of faith. The people of God, the church, you're not supposed to have faith on the side by yourself, it's supposed to be with God's people. And far more importantly, sometimes neglected, is the object of our faith, the crucified and risen Jesus, the Son of God. So way too often, faith is like this uh, personal self-help, sentimental, emotional thing, and it's just so, so unhelpful. <clears throat> now, please hear me. I'm not opposed to Jesus loves me, big fan. Not opposed to you going to therapy to get help, also a big fan. Those things are great gifts. What I am saying is that as Christians who are also Americans, and most of us at least, we have the Declaration of Independence kind of blaring in our subconscious at all times that life is about my own pursuit of happiness. Like <clears throat> the subliminal script in our heads is often that of individual independence. Like, yo, this is about me. I'm gonna go find my truth and live my truth and I get to define life and love by what makes me feel good and don't you dare interfere with this thing. And after seeking my own happiness above all else, that slowly detaches me from being lovingly responsible for other people around me. And when this kind of mindset tries to do Christianity, it can result in an unnecessarily self-centered kind of faith. Now, <clears throat> one of the main problems with this is that faith in the Bible is not only defined in terms of dependence and not independence, but also faith in the Bible is kind of like a group project. We're called to a communal faith. We're called to a communal trust in Jesus. The, the big fun Bible word for that is covenant. The context of your faith is meant to be the gathered covenant people of God. That's the space where our faith is supposed to take root and be challenged and grow. Now, in my own life, um, this takes different shapes, but one of my favorite spaces uh, for this is a group of about a dozen guys that I meet with regularly and when I say regularly, I mean we're probably on about year 12 and we've barely missed a week. Um, not everybody comes every week. Uh, a lot of us are idiots, so we need to take a break here and there. Um, and most of the time it can feel pretty unspiritual, like we're just talking about football or music or, or work or, or making fun of each other. Like you'd probably be more spiritually edified watching reality television than coming and hanging out with us most of the time. But hey, at the same time, it's been 12 years with these dudes. so. We've been through a thing or two. There have been marriages that we've prayed over. There have been uh, miscarriages that we've grieved together. There have been uh, jobs lost and gained. <clears throat> uh, 
we're dudes. There's been some interpersonal friction along the way here and there, you know, to keep it fun. There have been adoptions <clears throat> that we have rejoiced in. Uh, one dude's fiance gave the ring back the Saturday before they were supposed to get married. Um, <clears throat> one of us got cancer and um, <clears throat> he had dreadlocks and so we shaved his head and prayed over him and then we went and sat with him at the cancer center, cancer center where he got chemo pumped into his body. And if a kid, or if one of us has a kid or has surgery, then we get the old uh, bro meal train up and moving. Um, there may or may not be uh, matching tattoos involved in, in all of this. Um, <clears throat> there's a couple of dudes among us who are multiple years sober, and they are night and day different than they were five years ago. A few of us at times have struggled with even suicidal thoughts. Uh, one of us <clears throat> went to China for four years to do ministry stuff and came back when his mom died. One of us right now is actually uh, praying about whether or not he should go to France for two years to do ministry stuff and still kind of confused about all that and figuring it out. And I promise you, <clears throat> you're just gonna have to take my word on it, that most of the time when we're together, we're talking about the dumbest, most peripheral stuff you could ever imagine. But I also promise you that I, I can't imagine my life of faith without these guys. It's a group project, right? In the fall of 2021, my family lost Sarah's brother and my grandmother and her grandmother all within about a month. And these guys cared for me and they let me be sad and they let me be angry. They let me be confused. They let me cry and complain about stuff and process it all and I know that I can't make it without these guys and in the realest way I can ever fathom, they're my brothers. My point is this, spaces like this are supposed to be the spaces where our faith exists. Lone Ranger faith is not a thing in the Bible. Faith in isolation is not biblical faith. <clears throat> faith is not only supposed to exist in your intellect as a set of ideas. It's not only supposed to exist in your emotions as a set of feelings. James has been trying to teach us that faith is supposed to be integrated and energized. What we believe and what we feel. What we say and what we do. And as we'll explore today, our faith is meant to be personal, yes. But it's also meant to be communal. Biblical faith cannot exist in a vacuum, it is covenantal in its essence, in nature. And all these things lead us up to our question for today, which is simply, what does a communal faith look like? That's what we have to know. If that's the space and the place where your faith is supposed to exist, we gotta figure this out. What does a communal faith look like? And this is a great opportunity for you to think about your own walk with Jesus and to what extent you're walking with other people. And how's that supposed to go? That group, pro group project of faith. And how do you know what should be included in a space of shared faith and collective trust? What, what kind of shape should all of this take? And in one way, the entire book of James wants us to consider this as well. What should a communal faith look like? That's our question. And to answer our question today, we get to do a deep dive, just the last two verses of James. That's our passage today. James 5, 19 and 20. That's our passage, James chapter five, verses 19 and 20. And even though it's only a couple of lines, 
Let's confess corporately our gratitude for God's word. I'll read our passage, and then I'll say my line, which is the word of God for the people of God, and then comes your line, make it good, make it loud, make it count. Thanks be to God. So what should a communal faith look like? James 5, 19 to 20, here we go. My brothers and sisters, if any one among you wanders from the truth and someone brings them back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Now, I'm gonna treat this passage right here like a final exclamation point at the end of the sentence that is James. And the exclamation point is gonna make us rethink everything in James because we thought it was gonna be a period. So yes, we're gonna dig into these verses right here, but we're also gonna try to review a lot of what James has already said. So don't forget, we have a big question about the shape of communal faith. That's the big question we need to get to. But in order to do the big question, these verses are gonna make us <clears throat> answer a couple, maybe a smaller questions. So first in my mind is James. Hey man, uh, why are you ending like uh, on a hit and run, like a mic drop and go? Like this just doesn't, it feels so abrupt. Have you met my friend Paul? He's got this great like grace and peace thing. Shalom, like it's, it's really nice. Maybe you could take notes from him. So. I'm curious about that, but I also have other questions like, what is the wandering he's talking about in verse 19, and what is the wandering from the truth? What's that that he's talking about? And then verse 20, look at it. It sure feels like we're the ones saving sinners. When we save sinners, we save their soul from death. I thought, hold on, I thought that was like entry-level Christianity. Hey, Jesus saved sinners, but we're doing it? It's a little strange. Also in verse 20, um, it says that... Uh, <clears throat> That, that it covers a multitude of sins. Like, what does that mean? I thought Jesus covered a multitude of sins. I thought he saved souls from death. I thought that was the definition of Christianity. So yes, we need to try to hit all these little sub-questions, but they're gonna help us address the broader communal faith thing. And so here's how we're gonna do it. I have four uh, descriptions of a communal faith, four little phrases to describe a communal uh, faith, and I'm gonna give you each descriptive phrase, and then I'm gonna show you where that is in our verses, and then hopefully show you in the rest of James. So that's our approach here. So let's dive in with the first of these four descriptive phrases. Number one, a communal faith is familial and vulnerable. That's very like uh, uh, tonguey and Weird to say for the first one, it should be simple. Familial and vulnerable. Look how verse 19 starts. My brothers. <clears throat> now, if you are a Spanish teacher and you walk up into your classroom filled with guys and girls and you say, hola amigos, that is not sexism because amigos is masculine in Spanish. It's just a way to say, hey y'all, to everybody in the room. And the Greek language is also a gendered, the Greek of the New Testament is also a gendered language, and so this is the term for brothers and sisters, all of God's people gathered together. That's the easy part. The more unique part is why James calls them that. Well, because Jesus is the true Son of God, when he welcomes people into his family because of what he has done, we become Jesus's brothers and sisters. We become Jesus's family. And here's your Bible fun fact for the day. You ready for this? The book of James has the highest concentration of this word in the entire Bible. Brothers, brothers and sisters. 
Look, he starts with it. In James 1, verse two, count it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. And then that's how he ends the whole thing. My brothers and sisters, go after the one who wanders. And he calls them brothers and sisters 20 times in just five chapters. Incredible. Now, as the early church grew in the first few generations after Jesus, they got, they got made fun of a lot by surrounding communities and the Roman Empire and stuff. And one of the biggest ways that they were made fun of, I mean, some people called them like cannibalistic because they'd be like, hey, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're like, you're weird. But another way that they were made fun of is that they were regularly called an incestuous religion because the early church was so insistent on their identity as Jesus's family that the surrounding world ridiculed them for how they talked about each other. <clears throat> so that's the familial thing, but it's connected to the vulnerable thing, and here's how. Now, I, listen, I'm not opposed to the language of community. I am pro that language, it's important. We use it around here, we're gonna continue to use it around here. The sermon's even called a communal faith. But think about it, sometimes community can primarily be around a common experience or a common interest, okay? And that's not wrong, it's very easy to be depressed with my fellow Gamecock fans. That's really, it's a natural, natural, easy connection there. But if you don't have a common interest with somebody, community might feel elusive or like it requires too much work. However, hey, if your family, guess what? You're stuck with each other, ha-ha, right? And in families, guess what? You know people's business. And families are the healthiest when they own up to their business. That's what that's called, vulnerability. It is entrusting your soul to people that you have to believe aren't going anywhere, who have your best in mind, even if it gets ugly. That's vulnerability. It's just what a healthy family does. And that's why James just said, hey, confess your sins one to another. That's not pretty. It's what Charlie's been talking about the past two weeks with community and prayer. You can't do those things the right way on the surface. It requires a depth and an honesty that we think we don't have time for. And it requires a confessing posture that we're often scared of because shame holds us back. And it's exactly why I do not hesitate to call those dozen dudes brothers. Because they know my pride, they know how I can be controlling, and they know my people-pleasing idolatry tendencies. And they've given me relational space to be vulnerable and open with them, and that's the space where faith is supposed to be nurtured. So, <clears throat> what will a communal faith look like? It'll be familial and vulnerable, and secondly, a communal faith will be distracted and tempted. Obviously, I switched from should be to will be. It'll be distracted and tempted. This is not a praiseworthy thing. It's just an is thing. Like, we are a family, yes, but we're a family in a broken world where the pain and presence of sin are both still very real and we're not yet totally home in God's new creation. Now, knowing this, James starts out right away in chapter one talking about <clears throat> perseverance and temptation. In James 1.16, he says, do not be deceived, my brothers and sisters. And then he ends kind of in the same way right here in 5.19. If anybody wanders from the truth, go get them. 
Now, the picture in 519 is, is a really simple picture. We're all, it's like this. We're all on this road together, and we're walking together. We're going together in the same direction. The word road or way in Greek is actually used in verse 20. It's just weird to translate into English. But we're all on this road, and then we realize somehow we're all walking on this road together. Get it in your head. And we realize that a brother or sister is off the path. They're off the road. And this, these verses, it's not about whether or not they're a Christian. They are my brothers and sisters. This is about whether or not they're living like it, right? That's what this is about. Just like the workless faith in James 2 that exists, the faith exists, but it's useless. It's, it's like living in death. That's what James says, it's a dead faith. And here's the strange thing. The same word in verse 19 for wander it, it, here is the same word for deceive in James chapter one, verse 16. That's why we're saying a communal faith is distracted and tempted. <clears throat> because the word, you gotta get this, the word is purely about that somebody's not on the road anymore, not on the path, but it doesn't tell you the mechanism for why and how they started going a different way. Now, <clears throat> maybe that brother or sister, maybe they took their first steps off the road because they were hurt and they were confused and they were a little mad at God. And some pastor person glibly told them, hey, it'll be okay, all things work together for good if you love God. And that pastor person did not take time to sit with them and should have kept their mouth shut. And because of that, this person began to harbor like a bitterness inside them. And then they fed that bitterness and it festered and it led to isolation. And then in isolation, to make sense of life, they self-justified everything they felt. And then they started taking that out on other people and being angry and bitter at other people. Maybe that's how they got off the path. Or maybe your husband just got a new job and for the first six months he's gonna be gone a lot and you're gonna miss him. And so an occasional glass of wine at night with a couple girlfriends turns into a, a few glasses of wine and then it turns into you drinking by yourself and then it turns into a few glasses of wine, drinking by yourself every night. And then when your husband is finally home, you'd rather him not be. You don't miss him. And you view, get it, you view anybody who tries to kindly talk to you about it as threatening your pursuit of happiness. And that's how you've stepped off the path. Again, in these verses, we're not told the exact process this language could be about someone that has been lied to or deceived or tricked and wooed from the way, or it could be that they have rebelled and hardened their heart and stuck up their middle finger at God and became fully convinced that God has no clue what he's doing. The wandering could go either way. And when it says wander from the truth, it's not really talking about having all of your theology in order, although I'm a big fan of that because I'm a theology snob, it's talking about inconsistency between your theology and your life. The phrase wander from the truth in verse 19 is about a life that is out of step with the faithfulness and the self-giving love of the gospel. We're not totally sure how they got there, but they're off the interstate somehow. And part of the job is to figure that out. Now don't forget, not maybe, but you will feel this if yours is a biblical and a communal faith. You will feel the ache of people you love going and doing their own thing. 
And you may even feel the temptation and siren song to quit walking the path a little bit because sometimes life is really, really heavy and hard. Now, I scratched my head all week and I wanted to like zoom James in heaven and be like, bro, why did you just hit and run in this thing? Why is so abrupt? And I just wanna know why he ends like this. Even if he, hey, even if he does a grace and peace, blah, 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 why do you, this feels anticlimactic as an ending. I think though, he ends like this because of how he starts. He starts with, hey, persevere, let's be steadfast. He encourages them at the beginning to endure the trials and count them all joy because it'll strengthen your faith. He says in chapter one, verse 12, blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial. And so these final verses are an exclamation point because they represent anti-perseverance. These verses are, wandering from the way, unsteadfastness. This wandering is an unanimated faith, like James 2. If you're not walking the way with God's people, if you're not faithfully on the road with God's family, if you're not enduring well, that is a, basically, it's a recipe for isolation, seeking your own truth, pursuing your own happiness, and it usually results in detachment and angst and frustration, and that is not what you were created for. Now, maybe you are here today and you would own this. You'd be like, hey, Jim, I got one foot off the path. No question about it. Maybe two on the weekends, <laughs> right? <clears throat> That's, I'm gonna be 100% honest. And you feel this thing at a visceral level. You feel this. And if that's you, brother or sister, I'm thankful for your honesty and I'm sorry for the hurt that is in your heart and we would love to hear your story. But I'm super glad <clears throat> that you're here because a space in a place like this is where Jesus, this is where Jesus wants to bring peace and healing and belonging into your life. And guess what? <clears throat> if that's you, James gives you both a preventative and a prescriptive medicine for this. The preventative medicine is family vulnerability. We already, we already did that one. It's gonna help guard you from the wandering. But the prescriptive medicine is our third point, our third point, which is a communal faith is restorative and repentant. A communal faith is restorative and repentant. Verse 19, <clears throat> brothers and sisters, if someone wanders from the truth, go bring them back. That is the prescriptive medicine, that as Jesus's family, we should be a pursuing, renewing, restorative bunch of people. And here's why we're saying restorative and repentant. Obviously, this includes family members pursuing other family members who need help. But the word for bring back in verse 19 is a word about turning. And so it's like, look, it's like we're on the road. Don't forget the road thing. It's like we're on the road and we go off the road to go get somebody who strayed the path. And then we turn them around to face the road again. But this word bring back is also one of Luke's primary words for repentance in Luke and Acts. And so the person who you faced back toward the road, they still need to repent. Like if you go get somebody from the path, they still have to walk back. This is this is not a hostage scenario, okay? Even though maybe some of your uh, denominational upbringing and personal, uh, you know, your, your Enneagram or whatever might want that to be the case. <laughs> this, is, this is not that kind of space. This, this is a both-and picture of walking back with them where you're supposed to be walking together. You feel that? This, this language 
in James 5, 19 to 20 is a both-hand picture of you walking towards somebody and then walking back with them where you're supposed to be doing the thing and walking the path together. And those dozen dudes that are my brothers, we have an unwritten contract of sorts that basically says that if any of us ever cheats on our wife, the rest of the guys have permission to, I can't say it in a sermon. Um, And uh, (laughs) here's the deal. It definitely involves uh, pursuing the guy who messed up. We'll just say that. We'll, we'll just say that. But here's, here's I, I, I don't think we'll ever have to have that unwritten contract come into play. But here's what I love and know, and it's true. <clears throat> the principle of that thing is in play all the time on simpler levels for all of us guys in different seasons. Because some of us sometimes have gone through deep seasons of anger and maybe even hate. And others us, of us have gone through deep seasons of depression Some of us have tried to like cope or escape with pride or with unhealthy habits or sometimes just good old fashioned blaming other people. And yet we've tried to not just be there for each other but also give space and genuinely care for each other's well-being. Paul Tripp calls this being intentionally intrusive in people's lives and you cannot, and that's what you need and you cannot do that outside of godly community. I also like to think of it in terms of patiently pursuing other people. But whatever alliteration you use, part of the process of 5, 19, and 20, part of the essence of it is is this. Ready? It is not quick and it is not tidy. If you want quick fixes, I'm so sorry. This is not the place. There, There is a messy withness that will most assuredly get in the way of your individual pursuit of happiness right here. Whether it's with your son in his 20s or a coworker who you know is a Christian who just does not care right now or whether it's with somebody in your small group and you can tell that they're starting to roll their eyes and stray the path a little bit. It will always be messy, always. And the goal of the messy involvement, the goal of going after the wandering soul is not to feel better about yourself and have some awkward martyr complex. The goal is that they would come to repentance, that they'd be restored to joyfully walk the path together with you. And I know that repentance can be like a churchy sounding word, but it it means to change your mind. Repentance is a U-turn. That's a good like walking the road, walking the path metaphor. It's realizing that your fist is tightly clenched around your way of doing things and then slowly loosening your grip on your agenda and your plans in order to trust and cling to God's plans instead. The restorative movement of faithful believers to be present to and to care for And to bring back distracted believers, the final step is repentance. Sometimes it's hard to believe on the front end, but the reward and the joy and the intimacy of it on the other side is sweeter than the struggle and the process is difficult. It really is. Now, two obvious questions surface here if we're looking at misogyny, James 5, 19, 20, the right way. Two questions kind of practically come to the forefront. The first one is, do you have anybody like that in your life? 
If you don't, you're asking for your faith to be harder than it should be, unnecessarily harder than it should be. You got anybody like that in your life? Do you have anybody that you know that will come after you and lovingly pursue you even when you're making some dumb decisions? Who is that in your life? You, you, look, you have to have that. I have to have that to persevere well. That's the first question. <clears throat> you got anybody like that? Second question. How do you become that for other people? That's what James is saying. Not only do we need to go do that, you need to be that. You need to be ready to be that person at all times. How do you become an empathetic pursuer in Jesus' name? What is required to have enough relational trust and equity with somebody that when you go after them in grace and love, they are not immediately defensive? What do you have to do relationally to get to that place where they're not angry before the conversation starts? How do you become that kind of person for other people in the body of Christ? These are the kinds of things that we should ask right here. Also, this is probably a good juncture for me to say a couple more things. One, if you don't like your small group, it's okay. It's okay. It'll be great. I promise. Give it some time. Take a deep breath. All right? You'll be good. Um, If you need to switch small groups, it's also okay. Nobody's angry. All right? We're not burning anything down. All right? Take a deep breath. It'll be okay. Give it more time than you think you can. Finding and being these kinds of people is a long sunrise and not a light switch. Okay? But it's sweet, it's worth it. Also, if you are not in a small group, you are more than welcome to go tackle Zach after service over in the community group center. He would love nothing more. And tell him, just be like, yo, I need that kind of stuff. I need a space like that for my faith. I know I need that. I need it. And we'd love to get you involved with something like that. All right, quick review. A communal faith should be familial and vulnerable. It will be distracted and tempted. Uh, It should be restorative and repentant. Um, Lastly, a communal faith is like Jesus because of Jesus. Like Jesus because of Jesus. And this one requires a little bit of explanation. Here's where we get to look at the kind of uh, odd language in verse 20 for just a second. A communal faith is like Jesus and because of Jesus. How so? So, watch, here we go. If we're on the road and we go after the wanderer, how do we, how do we, please look at you, look at me. How do we save their soul from death, okay? It's a big, big thing. Well, this is not directly talking about eternal death apart from God, separated from him forever, this is talking about James chapter two, living in death right now, like a, like a dead faith, like a useless faith. It's similar uh, in 5.15, James 5.15, the healing and the saving there, they are likewise talking about a present restorative salvation that is a foretaste and a reminder of our full and eternal salvation that we have in Jesus. So that's the saved soul from death thing. But then it says, cover a multitude of sins. What is that I mean, I thought that was Jesus's job. Well, I actually think that this one is deeply uh, pastoral and practical, and here's what I mean. 
Um, one thing in view here is that sin is connected to sin. <clears throat> this is just good systematic theology. Sin is connected to sin, and here's what I mean by that. If you are passionately following Jesus in every area of your life, at work, you're doing it for his glory, and you go home and you love your wife and kids, you're doing it for his glory, you're serving, you're giving your time away, and then randomly on the side, like you embe- you're embezzling millions, that's not a thing, okay? <clears throat> you see what I'm saying? Sin is connected to sin. Here's what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is your pornor- pornography might be masking your resentment. Do you see? And then your resentment might be directly connected to you being manipulative at work, which then you take home with you and you're impatient with your kids. That's what I'm saying. Sin is connected to sin, covers a multitude of sins, because if it was about Jesus' atonement, it would be like all sins. So what's going on here? The point is that there's a lot of moving pieces and connected things when people wander from the path. When a brother or sister is brought back, a multitude of interconnected sins, are start, they start to be seen and repented of. That's what James is getting at. And the covering here is not atoning for it like Jesus, but it points to it. It's not providing eternal forgiveness for those sins, but the forgiveness we extend points to the eternal forgiveness we have in Jesus. Covering a multitude of sins means that the mercy of pursuit outshines and outmatches the shame of somebody selfishly doing their own thing and coming back. It's like somebody showing so much restoring grace and kindness that the kindness weighs more than the waywardness. And I hope you can start to see it now. This is why, hey, this is why a communal faith should be like Jesus because of Jesus. We do these kinds of things as the body of Christ for others because he did them first for us in his own body, nailed to a tree, taking our rebellion into himself all the way to death and out the other side. First John 4, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son Jesus to be the atoning, the covering sacrifice for all of our sins. And Luke 15, Jesus is like the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the lost sheep. He's like the woman who ardently seeks and finds her lost coin. He's like the father of the prodigal, pursuing in order to restore. He came to save and to rescue us, to give us a place in his family forever. So now, as a taste of that, we should go after others to remind them of God's saving and rescuing love and grace. I think that's what James is nudging us to think about. Now let's do one more fun fun thing. Let's zoom all the way back and think about this in view of all of James. Why do we count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when we go through trials of many kinds? Why do we do that? Because for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He faced the ultimate trial. Why are we blessed if we remain steadfast under trial? Because he stayed the course all the way to Calvary and he didn't wander from the path. And he wore a crown of thorns so that we could wear a crown of life. James 1.12. Why do we need to be careful about our words that sow death? Because he's the word of life that came to absorb death into himself. Why should we be patient in suffering? Because love is patient. And Jesus' long-suffering love towards us can give us grace to endure. Why do we need to leave the path to go after a wanderer because he left his throne in heaven to come to us and bring us back to him. Why is it messy and self-emptying when we pursue other people? Because it was messy when he emptied himself 
and became a servant. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us all the way to the cross. What I'm telling you is that Jesus has done James 5, 19 to 20 ahead of you. Jesus has done James 5 for you. The gospel is that God brought us back to himself in Jesus. He has brought us back to the road, to the way, the truth, and the life through the cross and resurrection. And he has forever saved us from death and covered all of our sins, past, present, and future. And if you believe Jesus and you depend on him and swear allegiance to him, if you have faith in him, now we are free. We're set free to invite other people into this freedom. Now we are forgiven to be forgiving And here, there is zero room for hyper-individualized, self-centered faith. This communal faith as Jesus' people is climactically like Jesus because of Jesus. And like the cross, it will not be pretty, but it will be light years beyond worth it. And you might not believe it, but this is where real life is found. Fellowship Greenville, I have really, really good news for you. You have everything you need to persevere in faith. You have a crucified and risen Jesus who has persevered ahead of you and welcomed you into his family. You have a communal faith, and I hope that is sweet to you. And now let's, uh, let's walk the road together. As we close in prayer, here's what I encourage you to do if you wanna put up your Bibles and your notebooks and pens and stuff. I'd love for us to just sit still for a second and ask the Holy Spirit to press these things onto our hearts. And if you're having trouble with language and prayer for that, thank Jesus that he pursues us as wondering, like when we wondered, he interposed his precious blood. Thank Jesus for that. So let's take 30 seconds and ask the Holy Spirit to make these things beautiful to us. Father, we thank you that you are faithful. Faithful beyond our understanding. And Jesus, we thank you that you have come from heaven to earth to rescue us. In spirit, we thank you and we're terribly humbled and overjoyed that you use people like us to draw others continually into the life of Jesus. Father, Son, and Spirit, thank you, thank you, thank you. Now give us extra measures of grace upon grace upon grace upon grace to know you and to love you and to invite people to behold the life that can be had in you. Please. Jesus, we love you. You're the best. Amen.